You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 34, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Rohan Gunatalaka, an innovator in the design of technology that promotes mindfulness. Rohan is probably best known for Budify, one of the oldest and most well-known guided meditation apps available. He's also the founder of Mindfulness Everywhere, a creative studio that combines meditation, technology, and design, and which is responsible not only for Budify, but also for the mindfulness apps Sleepfulness and Kara, and the book Modern Mindfulness, How to Be More Relaxed, Focused, and Kind While Living in a Fast, Digital, Always-On World. We're extremely pleased to welcome Rohan Gunatalaka to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the upcoming interview with Rohan Gunatalaka, you'll hear him talk about all of the ways in which he and his team at Mindfulness Everywhere design new products in ways to help us have a better experience as users and to be more mindful. And for today's tip, I'm going to give you some suggestions for how to stay more focused by choosing which products you already have to use. In particular, my suggestion is to use a single purpose device for whatever task you're about to perform. What do I mean by that? That could be as simple as using an old-fashioned pen and paper to write or for reading to take out one of your Kindles if you have one. I've got an old black and white Kindle. All I can do with it is read books. And the reason I say this is it's so easy for us to pull out our smartphone reflexively to do whatever it is we want to do next, because they're so great at being able to do everything. And that can be really super convenient, allow us to do things everywhere. But the downside of it is that when we have a device that's capable of doing everything simultaneously, anywhere, really quickly, it can be hard to stay focused on doing just one thing. So my tip is that if you are having a hard time staying focused, doing one thing at a time with your smartphone, try using a single purpose device. Another great example is to use an old-fashioned alarm clock to wake yourself up, <laughs> helps you keep your smartphone out of your bed, and you'll know that when you reach for that alarm to turn it off in the morning, you won't be tempted to then use it to check your email because it's not possible because the only thing that alarm clock can do for you is wake you up. So try it out. Try using single purpose devices. And I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Rohan Gunatalaka. Hi, Rohan, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hey, Robert, great to be here. It's really great to have you on. There's a million things we could talk about. Uh, many people uh, may know about you through your very popular and long-standing meditation app, Budify, uh, which I would like to talk about. But the first thing I'd like to start with is, is something I heard you say in one of your talks, which I find really fascinating. Uh, if I understood you correctly, you said one of the things you like to do uh, or have as a, a focus in Budify and all of your other products is to make sure that 
the product is imbued with the kinds of qualities you're trying to promote in the product itself. Sure. I mean, I guess that would mean a, a meditation app that bombards people with ads is probably you know, not the kind of thing you would want to do. But could you talk about that as a as a design philosophy uh, and, and particularly how it relates to products that promote mindfulness? Sure, absolutely. So I think the... I think as an app maker or app designer, I think the question is like, where, what are the boundaries of your product? So um, because the main way in which meditation apps works is that they work through guided meditations in some, some way, some kind of audio, one way of viewing a meditation app is that it's only about the audio content and that's the, everything else is not really part of the mindfulness experience. It's just purely the, the guided practices. But for me, that feels a very limited understanding of a sort of holistic, I, I much prefer a sort of holistic sense of a product. And so mm. can, I guess the, the principle or the idea behind Buddhify and the other stuff that we make is can, can, what would it be like if every interaction or every aspect of using one of our products supported the intention of the user supported their ability to be calm, kind, aware, and what would that look like? So that's the, if, if you think of that as the overall aspiration, um, then that influences everything. So that influence so on the, on the sort of the literal product design size, it, it impacts um, what it, what it feels like to press a button, what color palette you use, what visual aesthetic you use. Um, within Buddhify itself, those of you who know, those people listening who know the, the product will know that there's this wheel interface that we um, yes, have used yes. for a number of years. Yeah, and I think that, and that, we spent a lot of time working on the way that the wheel animates and so that it's just pleasurable to press a button. There's a, there's a sort of little joy. There's a little bit, little bit of pleasure that, um, uh, that happens in the, in the mind of the user that comes with delight that when you, when you're, when you're tapping a button and what that means is that, you know, when people from a designer perspective, when people are using meditation apps, often it's because they're feeling a little bit stressed or unsettled in that moment. And so if you can bring a bit of delight through the interaction, it takes the edge off that uh, difficulty that they're experiencing. And then importantly, as they then go into the a guided practice, their, their mind state is a little bit softer. And so they're more likely to get benefit from the practice that they do because there'll be a little bit less resistance, a little bit more openness. So that's within the sort of the boundaries of a sort of, literally opening the opening the app and going to your guided practice and then um and so that's like a simple example of how how we think about an, an a, a product so expressing all the values or, or product trying to uh generate or encourage the the overall objective of a product um and then if you think of it from a, that's the story, the example I gave there is maybe more of a positive one, but I think of a negative one. So one of the most common feature requests within Budify is notifications. So 
hey, I, I really want to use, I want to do more meditation. So can you put in some reminders within the app so that it tells me to meditate two times a day or whatever? Um, the problem with the reason, but we never, we never really integrated anything like that for a number of reasons. Firstly, that I hate notifications. And <laughs> I find them deeply annoying personally, which is as a, as a maker, I, I hold as my, like my right to, to bring a bit of authorial, authorial uh, decision-making to a product. But also for people, you know, certain people and see certain personalities react really well and respond really well to things like reminders and notifications. But there's also many people who don't. And we, so we did some trials of a notifications feature. And what we found was that your meditation app telling you to meditate resulted in self-judgment or you're mm-hmm. feeling bad about yourself. Um, and given that a lot of people use a meditation app to to get rid of that or to, to soften their inner criticism or to work with that kind of self-judgment. If you instigate a feature such as um, uh, notifications, then you're creating anxiety or self-judgment and then the meditation that they listen to as a result softens it. And by the end of it, you've got to net zero result. So, <laughs> um, so as a, you know, as a, as a, as a maker in this, or anyone working in the context of mindfulness and meditation, I think it's really important to think about all aspects of how people engage with your product. That includes things like marketing and email marketing. You know, it it can fit, uh, the 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 downs the positive side of this is that it can really encourage you can really make some lovely experiences for people. But the downside is that as a maker, you can feel paralysed by it as well. Like, um, you know, I know. Uh, I know people struggle with the uh, people who work in mindfulness struggle with the idea of marketing and what's appropriate and so on. Um, and you know, it's up to individual people and companies to work out what's, what's what's right for them. But the thing that's directed me is what's what's most in service of the individual who's using the product. So, um, so we don't send out a million emails a week sort of encouraging people to, to, to use the app. And I think that, uh, that sort of classic tech, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a suite of techniques within startup world or app world sort of loosely called sort of growth hacking, which is a euphemistic way of sort of describing some fairly nefarious marketing practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ultimately, what those, um, you know, you know, you know, Robert, like the, the way that so many products work is that um, if you're able to bring people back again and again into your product, then you're able to then either upsell them into a subscription or if they've already bought a subscription, can you continue to uh, keep them within your system so that they, they don't cancel their subscription? And the the sort of subscription model, which is which is in itself an aspect of design, right? Like the whole the way that a product is sold and monetized is as much a part of the design as the logo or the content. Um, and if you have a product which is dependent on subscription revenue, then by definition that product is. Uh, 
is incentivized to keep you within their product because otherwise they lose their revenue. And so, um, but, and you know, that, that makes complete business sense. And I completely understand why so many people use it. But in the context of meditation and mindfulness, my opinion is that the purpose of a good meditation app is to help you get to the point where you no longer need a meditation app. And that is orthogonal. That point of view is orthogonal with the idea of uh, weekly or monthly subscriptions. Um, and so, um, you know, all these, all these sort of, all these kinds of ideas and thinking have gone into inform our work. And I think the reason maybe that we're a little bit different in the way we approach things is that a we're a much smaller company. Um, and a self-funded company, so we can we can be we can afford to be slightly different. But also, as the person leading the the company and the products that we make, I sort of I sort of own the I sort of I sort of I do the I look after the content bit, and I also look after the product bit. So I have I have experience both in uh i write i write a majority of the the meditations at the same time as design screens and think about uh how the business works whereas in within bigger companies the mindfulness experts are separate from the business experts um and that's a that, you know that's a necessity of being a larger company um there will be more specialist roles but so that but the downside of that is that um often commercial drivers or commercial objectives might not line up with user objectives or or what's necessarily considered best in line from a mindfulness perspective. And so um those those different points of view then have to have a, a conversation. And in a if you work within a heavily invested environment, then that tends to be won by the by the money guys. Right. I mean, I can really respect what what you're doing in the sense that uh, just as you started saying that often people are focused on the content and certainly uh, it would be enough for you to be focused on providing great guided meditation content. You know, that's that's an amazing service to provide to people. But uh, what I hear you saying is that your values and what you're trying to promote through the guided meditations also influences how you design the rest of the product, the user interface or the user experience from the time that people first launch the app and their entire experience through it, and the business model as well. All of those things are integrated and driven by the same set of values. And I can respect it and also uh, appreciate that that's a challenging thing to do, to, to have a holistic approach where the content the design and the business model are all aligned with each other. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's, it's not possible to do that. And um, whilst the intention is always is to, to try and have that lineup, sometimes it's not always possible. And also, when it is possible, the downside is often that we're limited. It limits us in certain ways. So, for example, Budify is mo- like it's most limited in its ability to to scale or reach a large number of people due to the way that it prices itself, or um, the fact that we don't we don't have access to to, to large amounts of marketing budget. And so, um, we that sort of the our our scale and our commercial success has been limited by our 
by our approach, but that was a decision we actively took. Um, and you know, there's, um, and that, but you know, there are times <laughs> to be completely honest, there are times where I wonder whether I made the right decision. <laughs> um, uh, and, but then, uh, there are times when I, I'm very, very happy and comfortable and confident in what we've done. And, um, uh, so, you know, we've only, we've been very fortunate, you know, what started as a, a side project, um, has been able to, to grow into a profitable business and support people and, um, develop them. And, and also, like you say, it'll help, uh, help a lot of people out there. And it's an interesting question that any, anyone working in technology has to ask, which is how big is enough? Yeah. And, uh, um, what, what does scale really mean? And, uh, I think because, you know, I'm not based in the, in the States and I, my background is in, whilst I have worked in large, large companies, my background is also in having worked in the arts and worked in smaller sort of organizations and, um, social value led organizations. And that has definitely informed, uh, my way of working. Um, and I'm not, it's again, like, like any, like anything I say is not a criticism of other models. It's just, it's just where we've come from and, um, uh, everyone, every model has their pros and cons, and I think um, the the but, but the you know the growth of mindfulness as a category and as a phenomenon um, through the through the last five to ten years has been fundamentally a really wonderful thing, and um, we've definitely ridden on the coattails of some of the you know the headspaces mm-hmm. and calms of this world. Have done an amazing job to make the market essentially and uh, move mindfulness meditation into a whole new conversation. It's very exciting um, uh, space to be. And I think, I still think there's a lot of growth and development. It feels whilst it might feel like in certain parts of the world and depending what kind of bubble you're in, it can feel like we've reached peak mindfulness and everyone's doing it. And, but (laughs) I think in the real world, um, to use a terrible, (laughs) terrible phrase, if you think of, you know, if you think of like te- technology adoption cycles and think of mindfulness as a technology, which ultimately it is, um, uh, I think we're only really moving out of early adopter into um, sort of early majority, uh, if you think of that model, that particular model. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, uh, yeah, many people think that it's, it once it hit the cover of Time magazine, you know, that's a sign that it's past its peak. <laughs> but. Sure, and I think there are some very clear signs that it's still an immature space. You know, the fact that in the last couple of years, um, you know, any any technology that goes through its hype cycle at some point gets some kind of backlash, and we've we've seen whether it's in the Guardian or in the New York Times, these sort of influential publications for the likes of the mindfulness community, um, when we've seen. Uh, so-called negative narratives around mindfulness, the fact that the mindfulness community throws its arms up in the air and gets really worried about it and has to write screeds and screeds of uh, defences, for me, is a sign of immaturity because I think the, a mature marketplace can, criticize, can take criticism and get better and, um, and be able to criticise itself, actually. I think, for me, that it will be the success, will be the sign 
of the mindfulness world growing up is that it's able to see its shortfalls, talk publicly about it, and start to design them out. Um, and that's what I try to do through my writing and thinking to nudge in the little way that we can sort of nudge the conversation into something more constructive. Because I think we're in a bit of an evangelical moment, um, which is, you know, it's really, it's always when an individual, you know, it's certainly true for me, when, you know, when any person gets into mindfulness, you become very evangelical and you certainly want all your friends to do it. Right. And you, you tell them all and, and then, and then, but not everyone wants to do it. And then you sort of get annoyed with them. And, but can't you see that it's the best thing ever? And then uh, sort of we as a, a sort of the globe, the sort of the wider mindfulness community or industry is doing that. It's sort of come, is in the middle of that evangelical moment right now. Um, and so it needs to settle down and um, at the same time and, um, uh, the fact that there's actually been less stuff in the press recently around mindfulness is a positive, I think, because it means it's become a bit more normalized because ultimately that's what, that's success. Um, success is normalization, not, uh, not making it, not making it a story each time. Yeah. There was a while when it seemed like everyone was catching on to it as the greatest fad and cure all for every ill of humanity and, Clearly, that got a lot of attention, which in some way is positive, but probably not healthy in the long term in the, in the sure. way that you're talking about. And you look back at yoga, you know, gone through probably more mature in terms of an industry uh, or been around longer and that has gone through its own cycles. I, I've been more involved in the martial arts world. And sure. you know, there, there were certainly cycles and still now where there's uh, been pushback from within the martial arts world, newer innovators criticizing traditional forms. And, and as you said, there are lots of traditional martial artists and teachers pushed back really hard against that in a way that in some ways wasn't healthy. You know, this, this um, critique and attempts to innovate and test things against reality have turned out in, in the martial arts world, I think, to be really healthy, have caused everyone to really examine themselves and to improve. But it's been painful. <laughs> it's definitely caused a lot of disruption along the way. But I think in the end, I've uh, been healthy. But even there, there's an analogy where, you know, there's a lot of martial arts that's popular as a sport uh, only. It's somewhat lost the um, spiritual aspect. Uh, it's lost some of the holistic way of approaching it and practicing it and studying it. That's not something I think is particularly healthy. Uh, but yeah, these are all things which we've only just begun to to see the tip of the iceberg with in bringing mindfulness to a larger number of people. Yeah, and it's still for those within the context of martial arts and in mindfulness. You know, those aspects, the more holistic aspects, are still available. They've right. not gone away. They just um, they're still part of the system. They're just not necessarily in the scalable part of the system. Um, and I think the good news is that. You know, like the good news is that people who get into martial arts from a sport perspective, they will like. I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, I'm, I'm assuming, but there will be a percentage of those who go, oh, like I want to get into the the history of this and get into the holistic side. In the same way, people who get into mindfulness just to sleep better or to improve their putting game um, might. There'll be, there'll be some people who go, oh, they start pulling the string or what, what, oh, how does this stuff actually work and get really interested and end up, end up going deeper. And that's and like anecdotally, that's, I, I see that 
all the time. And we actually did a bit of, we actually did a research project in the last, last year where we sort of mapped different people's pathways through different kinds of mindfulness and saw how people took, tried different interventions and, um, start maybe starting through an app and then going further or adjacent into different things. And, you know, friends of mine who teach meditation retreats in San Francisco and elsewhere have had people turn up purely because, you know, it came through the app route and they ended up all the way in the, in a, in the sort of much more intense and complicated area of sort of face-to-face residential retreats. So that, so that, that sort of funnel to use a marketing term does work. Um, but this, and the danger is, I think for people who have vested interests in the more, um, uh, traditional aspects of that funnel. So if you work in traditional martial arts or traditional meditation communities, the danger is that we put a value judgment on other, on people who practice in different ways. Right. um, And say, well, that's not the real martial. That's not the real jujitsu. That's not the real meditation. Um, Because, you know, like what I've learned is that, you know, like, if someone wants to use mindfulness to sleep just a little bit better and that's all they do, that's great. You know, like, like who am I to then go, Oh, actually you should be studying the Satipatthana Sutta and learning about original Buddhist training and do this and do that. And success is like, just because I, you know, I grew up, Doing all sorts of hardcore meditation retreats, but I don't think the six, six like I don't I didn't make an app to to to, to turn people into meditators. I think mm-hmm. the meditation world seems to be fixated on what I, I think we've we fetishize the process rather than the outcome. Mm-hmm. So we fit, we fetishize the practice um, and certain types of the practice rather than the outcome, which is improving the mental well being and thriving of people. Um, but along the way, we've changed the objective to be everyone must become a meditator, which I don't think, which I think is the, is the, um, and yeah, like people will use meditation and particular formal meditation to, to achieve some of those outcomes, but that's not the point. The point isn't to take on the identity of the meditator. The point is to be kinder or to mm. see your difficult emotions and become better at dealing with them. And that is success not whether you can, not how many retreats you've done or all these other sort of uh, vanity metrics that tend to get chucked in there. Well, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. And it's actually a good way of, of talking about the other work that you do. You don't just develop Budify, uh, although no one would fault you if that's all that you did. Uh, but you lead Mindfulness Everywhere, which is a creative studio that makes products. I know you just mentioned doing some research studies into uh, the effects of meditation or apps on people. Can you talk a little bit more about the broader work that you do, particularly as it relates to technology? Yeah, I would describe ourselves as um, foolishly prolific (laughs) in the sense that, you know, um, we were, well, you know, it's a small team and it's sort of led by me and I've always been sort of um, interested in having all sorts of different things. And um, whilst there's more than enough work in Budify itself, 
um, I've always been interested in sort of adjacent areas and bigger frames and smaller frames sometimes. So we've made other we've made other apps. We've we've made sort of custom products. So um, uh, we made a, a, pro- a project with a cancer hospital in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago, which was really lovely, called Kara, which was they approached us and said, what would a Buddhify look like for people who are affected by cancer? And we sort of made a small uh, project for that uh, for them, which they refer their patients to, which is great. Um, we, uh, yeah, like I said, we do research. And I think the... One of the pieces which has been most interesting in the last few years has been was what I call what we call designing mindfulness. So this was the project where it was based on a very simple insight, which was the biggest meditation app in the world will only ever be a relatively small app in the context of technology as a whole. Um, because once when you badge something as being to do with well-being or mindfulness or meditation or mental health, like you instantly limit the number of people who will be actively interested. Um, so one way to scale, this is all come back to this question of how, what is scale and how much is, how big is big. And, um, whilst I was reflecting on that, I was sort of thinking about how one way of scaling mindfulness is to do what Headspace and Karma are doing or what they're doing really well, which is to sort of, just sort of scale vertically. Mm-hmm. Um, and about another way to scale is to scale horizontally. And what that means is stitching what we know about mindfulness and well-being into everything because given that uh if mindfulness teaches us anything it's that the quality and nature of your attention has a direct impact on your well-being and so given that most of our popular technologies especially from like messaging and social media and screen-based technologies let's limit ourselves to that screen-based technologies are by definition attentional technologies they are therefore, by definition, well-being technologies. Um, and so, how can any attentional technology start to think about how to be in support of positive well-being as opposed to negative well-being? Because there's a, you know, there's a this, the com- the global conversation around the impact of particularly social media and content on our mental health is a live thing and a complicated but important conversation. And part of the solution will be the makers of those technologies seeing what they can do to not necessarily make every, make all of their products what I call mind positive, but at least to make them less mind negative. Um, <laughs> And, you know, because if, if products of the scale of Instagram or Snapchat or WeChat or all of these things, a small change in there towards supporting the uh, attentional well-being of their users is, is socially important. It's, it's material. Um, and so all these companies have, um, you know, banks of people who are, behavioral scientists or neuroscientists or psychologists and their job at the moment is to trap you in their system and trap your attention well enough long enough so they can sell it to a third party or sell you an in-app purchase or sell you a subscription so all we need to do is uh, make part of their job um 
supportive of positive attentional behaviors. Um, and for that to happen, companies just need to give a damn. And, <laughs> uh, and, you know, you know, this is happening through the work of the likes of Tristan Harris and uh, his colleagues, um, as sort of the poster children for this conversation. Um, it is happening. Um, uh, but I think as we as users of technology have to become more uh, literate and more aware in that actually um, the manipulation of our attention comes at a cost and how much are we willing to, to, to put up with it. I wonder if you could give people any examples either of changes that the kinds of companies you mentioned have already made or change some kind of simple change they could make to move their products more in the direction of what you called mind positive, you know, just to make it concrete for people, what you're talking about. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's actually why we did the designing mindfulness project, which was that because the, this conversation can tend to be very vague. And so we want to do some real life concept designs of what this might look like. So if you go to designingmindfulness.com, you'll see some, some concept designs that we did. And I think, um, uh, I'll give an example, but just before, like, you know, in recent months, we've seen the likes of Apple and Facebook start to integrate some simple features like, you know, whether it's like night mode or um, uh, turning on, like changing uh, what apps are available at certain times of the day and measuring, like showing you your data. Like, So that's, you know, incredibly simple things, which is the start. You might, some people might consider that a token effort, but at least it's a start. Um well, I'll, I'll give a particular example. So um, one of our, if you go to Designing Mindfulness, it's a very, um, it's a bit of a technical geeky website and that sort of design, it's for designers and software makers. But one, like, And so we could come up with different principles, software principles or design principles. And one of them is called Respect Information Zones. So what this means is get out of the way effectively and um, avoid avoid putting too much uh, information into the user's view, which is redundant or unnecessarily and, and at worst creates anxiety. Um, and so the example we give is actually you know, within iOS where those of you who have iPhones know that if you have a notification or uh, notifications in your, in, your, um, in your apps, one way of that displays, the main way that displays is as a number in a red corner of your app icon. So if you have, if you've turned that on, which is default and, um, you have, uh, a bunch of emails in your inbox, there's nothing good about a red circle that has like 643 in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's completely, ba- you know, it's basic. Like the red, the red color is a sign of danger. We're trained since day zero that that's a dangerous color. And then you put a high number in there and then suddenly you're faced with this quite terrifying visual, mm-hmm. which is, you know, which is a perfect example of really great information delivery from an engineering perspective. It's, it's right. perfect. It's like, it gives you exactly what you need to know. It warns you there's loads of information here and it tells you specifically how much information there is. So it's, it's brilliant in one respect, but it's also not very kind. Right. Um, and I think that that red dot, red dot with a number, sort of, is a perfect poster child for 
a technology landscape which has been designed by engineers who haven't cared about how we feel. Um, yes. They cared about telling us useful things. Um, and so we thought, okay, how do you do the same, solve the same problem, but in a, in a way that's kind? And our solution is uh, a really lovely one, actually, which is instead of putting a red dot, what happens is on the home screen, you know, underneath each app icon is the name of the app, so Twitter or email or whatever, and mail. And um, instead of putting a number on a dot, we, the, the weight of the font is an indicator of how much, how many messages you have. So if you've got loads of Twitter DMs or notifications, then the Twitter name will be in bold. And if you have no email, your mail app, the name of it will be very thin. And so you're, you're still receiving the same information, but it's in a respectful way that isn't clubbing you in over the head and sort of causing you anxiety. And so, you know, that's a very elegant and simple example. Um, but I, and that's sort of, I think that's the reason I wanted to mention that one because it's a real, um, it doesn't, it won't, it's the same, inf- same kind of information. It doesn't make the, the product less commercially powerful. I think that's the concern, I think, for a lot of these companies who, fit, who when dealing with this, this sort of conversation around well-being, they're like, oh, the, the, the fear is that we have to change in such a way that our business doesn't work anymore right. uh, because they're so caught up in the idea that abuse of our attention is the way that the only way that to make money. And I guess my hope is that more my, my message to that is like, you know, if you are, if you are a company based on manipulation, then yeah, that's fine. Like it was sort of fine, but like, that's not the change you make. You can make other changes, which are more neutral to a bit more revenue neutral. So, but again, stage one is giving a damn. And, you know, I'd encourage anyone who's listening, not, not if you're in your car now, but go to this webpage at designingmindfulness.com because a picture's worth a thousand words. I'm looking at this uh, screenshot or maybe it's a mock-up of an iPhone. It's a mock-up. Yeah. And to see the difference without the badges there and notice the difference in how you feel looking at it. You know, I mean, I'm looking at it and I, I agree. I mean, looking at it, I don't feel that anxiety that I'd feel, not just with my Often I have many different apps with badges on them simultaneously on the home screen. Um, you know, I'm going to just mention my, one of my other pet peeves along this line, which is uh, uh, Microsoft Outlook desktop. I think by default, when you install it, it wants to notify you in three or four different ways simultaneously each time an email comes in by popping up a window, making a sound, oh, yeah. and doing a few other things. <laughs> and every time I have to reinstall it, I, I immediately go in and change those settings. But, you know, I'm always amazed when I meet someone else and they're at their laptop and I see they they haven't changed those settings. And uh, you know, it's very anxiety producing. And in fact, uh, you know, you might have multiple devices, each like that in the same place. I, I think, I think default settings is another place, you know, where, where uh, companies could pay some attention to, as you said, make fairly small changes that don't affect the commercial viability of the product, but could have a big positive impact on people's attention. Exactly. And I think that's, I think that's where we can go. And I think part of that is us being us, 
users. You know, we're starting to see that already quite a lot, I think, through different parts of the industry, whether it's like ad blockers and Mm -hmm. uh, other kinds of sort of conversations. And, you know, there's a recent really wonderful team uh, making a product called CMPO, which is an Android app, which basically like simplifies your Android experience to an incredible amount and strips mm. everything away. And we, so we're starting to see these these bits of innovation um, and, you know, the, the growth of products like Freedom and those kinds of things. And um, that it's definitely happening. And it's just a case of like when you're, when you're so used to, as you described, anxiety by default, you don't realize that there's another way of doing it. Um, and so I think there is a responsibility on companies to start switching their defaults to be a bit more kind. Um, uh, that would be a, a good way forward, I think. Hmm. Well, this is great. I mean, I think we could keep talking forever, but I, I'd like to end on this positive note of hopefulness uh, for the future. I think very often these conversations you know, can tend to be focused on everything that's wrong, uh, everything that is anxiety producing about devices. And it's great to hear from someone who is not just thinking about how to improve technology, it's actually doing it. So thank you for that and for the conversation, Rowan. It's really been great talking to you today. Nardo, thank you, Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Rohan Gunatalaka, the founder of Mindfulness Everywhere and the creator of the mindfulness meditation app, Budify. You can find out more about Rohan and Mindfulness Everywhere at budify.com and mindfulnesseverywhere.io. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Ellie Burrows, the CEO and co-founder of the Mindful Meditation Studio in New York, when we'll talk about the future of face-to-face and online meditation practice and community.